1: Greg, how is life as a Chicago political reporter right now? Is it a little scrambly? (laughs) Well,
2: it's a lot scrambly, but in the last uh, couple weeks, I've gone from having nine badly behaved children running for mayor to having to babysit two slightly less badly (laughs) behaving
1: children for mayor. Greg Pratt writes for the Chicago Tribune. Why do you say badly behaved?
2: Well, you know, like all political candidates, they spend a lot of time putting spaghetti on their head for attention and throwing (laughs) things across the room and yelling at one another. And when they get mad, uh, you know, it's not pretty.
1: The candidates Greg is keeping such a close eye on are Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson, who are in the final days of a hotly contested runoff election back in February these two unceremoniously defeated Lori Lightfoot, who had been hoping for four more years as mayor.
2: Voters in Chicago have sent a strong message, choosing not to put Mayor Lori Lightfoot back in office for a second term.
0: Lightfoot... It was a stunned room uh, when, when everyone saw Lightfoot take the stage because that concession speech came much faster than I think anyone was expecting, even people.
1: It was the first time in 40 years that a sitting mayor had not been reelected in this town. But Greg says. Don't let that fact fool you. I mean, were you anticipating that Lori Lightfoot may have one foot out the door by the time she was actually being voted on?
2: Uh, No doubt about it. I mean, by the time Election Day rolled around, she had antagonized almost every constituency in the city. And... That's not just me saying that that's there's an older woman, Susan Garza, who is very popular, who used to be close with Mayor Lightfoot, who used to exchange text messages with her that say, "I love you, I'm riding with you till the end." who They had a falling out, and Sue did an interview where she said, "I've never met somebody who manages to piss off everyone police, fire, manufacturing, teachers, business, and that's it. I can't support her
1: in the weeks since that first contest, Lightfoot has gone silent, refusing to answer reporters' questions, even though she is still in charge of the city. In the meantime, the two remaining candidates are scrambling to introduce themselves to voters. And most of these voters have one thing at the front of their minds. Public
2: safety is the number one issue, and if we could address public safety, then we could address crime. For me,
1: crime affects everything. It's the only issue that matters in this election. I mean, if you had to sum up what this mayoral race is all about, what would you say?
2: Oh, this is right versus left. This is progressivism versus conservatism. And you you have a real choice about, are we going to, quote unquote, unhandcuff the cops and let them be more proactive in policing, or are we gonna take the city in a different direction?
1: Today on the show, Chicago prepares to make a stark choice. Why Democrats around the country are watching. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system
1: Before we get into the nitty-gritty of this mayoral election, it helps to understand exactly how mayoral elections work in Chicago. First off, they are nonpartisan. That means back in February, there was a crowded race with all kinds of candidates. And now there is no Republican in sight. Both Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson are running as Democrats. And once this contest is over, one of them is going to be sworn in. That means when Democrats elsewhere in the country look at this race, they're watching big intra-party disagreements get hashed out in real time, especially when it comes to public safety. Greg Pratt says, looking at how Lori Lightfoot's term went down, what's happening now? It seems almost inevitable.
2: Well, politics are reactionary, which is how you can go from crazy talk all the time, set things on fire Trump to kind of boring uh, Joe Biden, you know, And, and similar here, you have a mayor who came in and alienated both the right and the left, and they mobilized in response to that because they they couldn't embrace her. And so, you know, Mayor Foote's four years in office sort of unleashed the more conservative and the more progressive sides of the city. And now they're, they're here in a fight to the death.
1: Huh. Well, I wonder if we can just start kind of from the beginning and just introduce these candidates, who they are, where they came from. So- let's start, I guess, with Paul Vallis. He's a longtime politician, right? Like He's been in the game a while.
2: Yeah, Paul Vallis had the risk of being a perennial candidate, which in layman's term means a loser candidate. It's a guy who runs every four years and loses. He had run for governor in 2002 and lost. He had run for lieutenant governor in 2014 and lost. He had run for mayor in 2019 and came in ninth place. So this was his last chance to be a a serious
1: politician, and
2: it's worked out for him.
1: He's called himself more of a Republican than a Democrat in the past, right? You're
2: saying
0: you would take a you would take a Republican. I would take a Republican, a Republican primary. You though. think of yourself as a Republican. I'm more of a Republican than Democrat okay. But but I'm
2: And that's one of the that's one of the points of contentions. And it's one of the interesting things about him this time, because he has he has spent a few years from twenty nineteen till now hanging out with a lot of conservative Republicans, doing conservative podcasts, doing interviews and talking to groups who are very, very conservative, some of which are ultra conservative and some of which are crazy. Why does he say he's doing that? He says, you know, I want to talk about school choice. You know, I'll talk to almost anyone, you know, I just go around and I I talk because I have issues I want to talk about. I'm an issues guy. I'm not here worried about their politics, which of course frustrates people who say, man, you got an answer for everything.
1: Hmm. What's his relationship with Chicago's police force? He
2: is promising Chicago police that he is going to help them. He is going to, even though he disputes it sometimes, he's talked about how they're handcuffed and he's going to unhandcuff them. That's essentially his message to officers is that you didn't get the support you needed in terms of officer wellness, in terms of being empowered to do your job. And I'm going to stand up to you like Lori Lightfoot did not stand up for you.
1: Vallis is particularly focused on plummeting arrest rates, which seem to have coincided with rising crime. He explains that by looking at what he considers onerous policies that restrain what cops can do. For instance, there's a new policy that outlines when and how police officers are allowed to chase people on foot. It's supposed to prevent police violence against civilians.
2: It's it's several pages long, and it talks about when and how and under what circumstances you can go for a chase and paul has a a thing where he will pantomime looking at the list and trying to figure out can i chase this person at this time and you know it's it's a it's an effective message it is interesting cuz it, it is a long chase thing and you know When should a police officer chase a bad guy? It's a simple question and a complicated question because you do want your police officers to chase bad guys. If all a bad guy has to do to get away from the police is run and the officer is scared to run because he doesn't understand the policy or because the policy has restrictions, then, you know, as a society, you're screwed because you have to be able to chase people.
1: But is there evidence that the police are, like, letting folks go? We have had the arrest rates go
2: down and that's not the result of where we're violating fewer people's rights. We're we're doing a better job and a smarter job. That's just that a lot of the cops have gone fetal, and that is a that is a serious problem in the city of Chicago.
1: But of course, cops intervene in a crime after a crime has occurred. They're not necessarily preventing crime from happening. And I think that's the point that the other candidate in this race would make, Brandon Johnson. He's much more progressive. Let's talk a bit about Brandon Johnson, who he is and how he got where he is now. Because Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, was making fun of him a couple of weeks before he beat her, right?
2: Yeah, and that's a a blood feud. You know, that's the ultimate fight of Mayor Lightfoot's term is her against the teachers union. And Brandon has been a leader with the teachers union since, you know, the, the current leadership team took over the teachers union in, I think, 2010. And so she was mocking him. She said he's a false prophet and a smooth talker and the son of a pastor, so he knows how to spin a story, but that he's not going to be an effective leader from the city. And of course, the voters rejected that.
1: Yeah. I mean, his political rise is interesting to me because it started like a decade ago when he was organizing, as you said, for the Chicago Teachers Union. And at that time, He told reporters that part of his group's mission was to put people into political office who would be responsive to teachers union issues. And it strikes me he's like the pinnacle of this political strength that the Chicago Teachers Union has been growing for a number of years. Is that fair? Yeah, no doubt about it. Mayor Emanuel had closed down
2: 50 schools, mostly in black and brown neighborhoods, if not entirely in black and brown neighborhoods. And so they started running candidates in the 2015 election cycle. They pushed Emmanuel into the first runoff. And the CTU in in about six years was able to change the political landscape where people are arguing on their issues. And now they have one more chance to to actually finish the job and take over.
1: Hmm. On the campaign trail, I was struck by how Brendan Johnson talks about public safety in really personal terms. Like he lives in... A neighborhood that's experienced surging crime. He talks about shielding his three kids from gunfire on his block. Uh, I have three children, uh, eight, 10, and 14. Um, one of the bullets that have come through our homes um, has been, um, it's, it's, its it's been hard. Uh, my son is a student at Like he, he just makes it clear that this is a lived experience for him. And it strikes me that that's not the case for Vallis.
2: That's right. It's it's different, you know. Um there's there's no doubt about it that uh Johnson lives in one of the highest crime neighborhoods in the city and Vallis does not. Vallis lives in a nicer, whiter area with a lot of cops. And so Johnson always likes to say I live on the west side and nobody has more incentive than me to Fix the city because I live on the west side of Chicago, which needs the help more than anywhere.
1: Yeah. And I guess the question is, like, whether the voters are going to buy it. And I know that a few days back, Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson had a debate that centered around public safety.
2: Please welcome Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson and former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Vallis. What happened there? It was really a remarkable scene. Again, we invite all of you to express your opinions by using those paddles. If you don't like what you hear, show us the red side. And both candidates sort of ran away from some of the more extreme things that they have said. You know, Commissioner Johnson made a point that he was asked about his previous support for defunding police, including, you know, there's a clip, the most used clip, to illustrate this is where he said, it's not just a political slogan, it's a real actual goal. And Commissioner Johnson gets asked about this and he goes, I said it was a goal, I didn't say it was my goal.
1: There are people who want to see the police budget defunded. Are, are you one of them? Listen to what I'm saying you give me an them? opportunity to answer the question. Okay. I said it was a political goal, I
2: never said it was mine. <laughs> so that's never been your goal? Which is highly misleading and disingenuous. He's signed letters about defund. He's been more explicit. He called defunding not only admirable, but necessary. And so, you know, he's he's backed away from that because he wants to be elected.
1: How did Paul Vallis talk about some of his more controversial statements about coughing the cops, about being more of a Republican? He's also said he's personally anti-abortion. And this is not a great moment for someone running in a Democratic city to be saying that.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to one of the things I like to say, which is uh, Paul sometimes talks too much and he creates problems for himself. And so, you know, uh, what he says about the handcuffs is he he denied saying that. But he's absolutely said that a lot. So he looked kind of silly when the moderator corrected him and read some of his quotes.
0: Um, How will, quote, removing the handcuffs from police build trust with the community and fight crime well please let me know where i said that because i know i've been on the stage where one one or two of the uh, individuals next to me would make reference to that but the bottom line
2: is but you know he then clarifies look i'm not talking about going back to the days when the cops would rough people up for no reason i'm talking about we need to make sure that our officers are proactive that they're out there, that they're getting to know people, that they're that they're going after bad guys, that they're building relationships in the community, and they're not just sitting in their car. You know, it's it's his own mess because it's his own words.
1: So recognizing that polling cannot tell us everything at this stage, is the race between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson close?
2: Some independent polling that I've that I've been told about um, has them pretty close to each other. This will this will shock you and your listeners, but each candidate's poll says that they're winning.
1: (laughs) After the break, picking apart the reality of crime in Chicago from the fears that surround it.
3: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queen say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
1: One of the curious things about how much crime has dominated this mayoral race in Chicago is that there's actually some evidence that violent crime, like murder, has gone down in the city over the last year. But Greg Pratt says when you're from the Windy City, the way you perceive crime, that can be filtered in all kinds of ways, through your emotional lens, through the city's history.
2: When you travel from Chicago to another uh, another city in the world, an international city, they will ask you about Michael Jordan, and they'll ask you about Al Capone. <laughs> and Al Capone has been dead for 80-some years. So... Chicago has always been a a city with notorious crime. The issue lately is that it has gone up significantly after the pandemic, and you started to see shootings and homicides go up. And maybe more concerning to a lot of average citizens, the carjacking skyrocketed, and it really scares a lot of people. And so you have this mix of uh, very real crime spikes, and then you also have people being scared because it affects them. And I, I remember somebody was telling me that Lincoln Park is a hellhole. And and Lincoln Park is one of the wealthiest, most peaceful areas in the city. Right by the water, gorgeous. And I was like, no, you know, um, yes, there, there have been some crimes in Lincoln Park. It is not an unsafe place. Uh, you will be fine in Lincoln Park you know you can't really argue with something irrational like fear and that's that's one of the hurdles that both candidates have and that helped bring down the mayor
1: yeah i mean looking at some of the statistics and i'm not a statistician but it seems to me like the rise in crime more generally has been fairly local and localized in places where crime has been a problem and violent crime has been a problem consistently. But then there are these aberrant events, like things happening on the Magnificent Mile, where it's like, that's just, it's a jewel of Chicago. It's a place that's seen as very safe. You know, It would be like violent crime happening on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And so it's this combination of things where you do have crime rising, but then it's mostly local. But then there are some signs of folks feeling like there's crime where there didn't used to be crime. Is that fair?
2: Absolutely. And that's what's got people freaked out.
1: Yeah. In a poll in February, I feel like Chicagoans were remarkably consistent about how they felt. Like 44% of Chicago voters said crime and public safety were the most important issues for them. Like nearly two-thirds of those polled said they personally felt unsafe in the city. There's so many ways you could address that. Do voters agree on how to address this problem?
2: No, and that's that's how you end up with a splintered city with um take the handcuffs off versus defund the police and you have these these two ideas where you know uh crime cleaved the the city right down the middle and now you have um some conflict between two very different sides of the solution coin. It's really fascinating to watch. And it's really interesting because Mayor Lightfoot, I think uh, part of why Mayor Lightfoot didn't win her re-election is that she didn't figure out how to talk about crime without insulting and, and condescending. I mean, she would tell people, she had a TV ad that said, you wouldn't know it from listening to the media and the haters, but crime is going down and the mayor has a plan. You wouldn't know it by watching the news or listening to the haters. But on crime, Mayor Lightfoot's got a plan. She's putting more police on. And a lot of people heard that and they say, Well, I'm worried about crime. Does that make me a hater? Mm. And even though she would go on and give potential solutions and talk about things that she's done or what she wants to do, when you start off a conversation by dismissing or downplaying something that's visceral for people, it's a real problem. And, you know, both of these candidates are trying not to do that in their own ways.
1: Yeah. I mean, I look at this mayoral race and part of what I see as an issue is like, what does the mayor control and how much can the mayor do? Like one of the ways that Brandon Johnson is attacking Paul Vallis is by calling out his previous statements on abortion because he said he's personally opposed to abortion. That's not something a mayor is going to have a lot of control over. That's something that's going to be state and national. So uh, I, I wonder if that will resonate with voters. But crime, the police force, that is something where a mayor will have some control, not complete control, because there's also a local DA to deal with. But to me, it'll be interesting to see how voters process that. Like, what can a mayor control and who has the solution here?
2: Well, that's the that's the beauty and terror of politics, where people get blame and take credit for things that have nothing to do with them and, uh, or little to do with them or questionable to do with them. You see it with presidents and the US economy. You see it with mayors and the crime rate. You know, there are things that they can do, but there there's also things that they can't do. And this, you know, if if you have a pandemic which closes down schools and, and puts people on the street and you you start to have some chaos, There isn't really something you can do about
1: that. Yeah. I mean, no matter who's elected, do you anticipate huge changes to public safety in Chicago? So you have two candidates
2: who have very different approaches to the issues. And as a practical matter, you get a new administration in office and they campaign in poetry and they govern in prose. A lot of things end up staying the same because it's not so easy to change institutions. So it's really hard to picture that, you know, Paul Vallis is going to become mayor and hundreds of officers who had retired are going to rush back and they're going to be chasing people left and right. And then on the other hand, it's hard to imagine that, you know, Commissioner Johnson becomes mayor and he's going to defund it or he's going to, I don't know, you know, set up a prayer circle every day uh, to address crime, you know? So it's it's really hard to picture how much things change day to day, because uh, the nature of politics is just that a lot of people make a lot of promises and then they're really hard to execute.
1: You know, so many people are looking at Chicago to understand the way Democrats will be talking about issues like crime moving forward. Do you anticipate the results here are going to be meaningful, not just for Chicago, but for Democrats at large?
2: I think so. You know, I don't I don't like to make predictions, uh, especially because we are two and a half weeks out, and you know, you never know what's gonna happen, and and there's been a lot of craziness in Chicago. One thing I would say is with every election you have you have candidates and Paul Vallis is Paul Vallis, and Brandon Johnson is Brandon Johnson, and they are running on issues, and there there is symbolism and there is meaning that can be gleaned from that, but you also you know if brandon johnson beats paul vallis it will likely have as much to do with the fact that paul is on tape saying i'm more of a republican than a democrat in one of the largest uh democrat run cities in in the country we haven't had a republican mayor since the 30s and so it's hard to extrapolate all the time from from individual races because you know you do have very special circumstances in every single election that that go beyond the issues, although the issues um, absolutely are a microcosm.
1: Greg, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated this conversation.
2: Hey, thank you very much.
1: Greg Pratt covers politics and City Hall over at the Chicago Tribune. And that's our show. If you are a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus, which is our membership program. Best way to do that is to head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus find out all about it. You can sign up right there. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support right now from Jared Downing and Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. Look at pictures of my dog. I'm at Mary's desk. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow.
0: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
2: So first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
2: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.
0: A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize
3: yet. California realized that they were coming for us.
0: I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown
3: in California.
2: Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative.
3: It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality.
2: Your life as
0: you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. rights rights With so much at stake, young people became activists.
1: We were all coming out
0: all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders.
1: My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you.
0: (laughs) Floburn. Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.